Hello and welcome to another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a 34-year police veteran of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I am the author of A Cop's Life and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And uh, I want to welcome you to another episode of our show. If you are watching this on YouTube or you are listening to it on the radio or on AmericaOutloud.com, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I have a special host, co-host with me today. Jason Harney is with me. Jason is uh, a retired police sergeant and also a, a filmmaker. Uh, he is uh, got a, a really interesting perspective on law enforcement. We're going to get into that shortly. But first, I'm going to give you my view from the blue. So I want to talk about what I call Trojan horse district attorneys and prosecutors. And, and the reason that I'm bringing this topic up is because in New York City, a, a brand new radical district attorney has been voted into office into, in Manhattan. And uh, his name is Bragg. And within, within days of his uh, in, uh, coming on to, onto the job, he has issued a, basically a proclamation um, that he is not going to prosecute basically anybody for anything. Uh, when, I, when I say this, I'm not, I'm not even being facetious. He has, he has announced that among his other, among other things, he is going to prosecute armed robberies as petty larcenies. You heard me correctly. In his view, if I come up and I point a gun at you and you give me everything that's in your, in your pocket, 85 bucks or 100 bucks, and I don't shoot you, well, that's just a petty larceny. And that's that is actually he announced this. It is absolutely outrageous. He's not going to he's not going to prosecute for a number of other crimes: drugs, prostitution, um, resisting arrest. Uh, now, I bring this up because Bragg is just one of of a legion of district attorneys and prosecutors who have been put into office by the millions of dollars of funding provided by an individual named George Soros. Soros, through a, a, uh, a complete landscape of uh, nonprofits and, and, and uh, organizations, has been funding these, uh, these district attorneys and prosecutors' races for a number of years now. And the insidious nature of this is something that needs to be known to the public. And that's why I'm talking about it. Now, what does a Trojan horse district attorney mean? Well, it means that that, that individual who is an enemy of public safety, make no bones about it, an enemy of public safety has been let into the gates by the voters. The voters have put these men and women into office. And these same, these same people who have voted to put these men and women into office are the same people who are going to be victimized. We all know that violent crime is surging across this country. It's, it's at record levels. Homicides are at record levels in America's cities. The, the uh, armed robberies, sexual assaults, and, and other violent crimes are seeing record numbers. And at the same time, we're seeing a lack of prosecution 
in these same cities. It's irrational. It makes no sense. But what it, what it reveals is that there is a movement afoot, a movement to undermine the very criminal justice system that is put into place to keep Americans safe. And that movement is being funded by people like George Soros, but mostly by him. He's a 91-year-old multi-billionaire who, uh, who you wonder what his end game is. So we have, we have uh, Chesa Bowden in San Francisco, the son of two murdering terrorists who one is still, still in prison for, for killing police officers and other people, who is as radical as they come. We have George Gascone in Los Angeles, who is uh, the, so where the body count is just piling up. And now we have Bragg. So you have, you have a radical district attorney in place in some of the, in some of the most uh, the largest American cities. And they don't they make no bones about it. They just simply don't want to prosecute for criminal activity. Now, there there at least is is a movement that is now taking place in Los Angeles and in San Francisco to recall those two district attorneys. I don't know if it'll be successful. I hope it will be because they are dangerous to the public safety. And America needs to wake up because the Trojan horse may be coming to a city near you. And that's my view from the blue. Let's bring Jason in to, uh, to get into this topic. Jason, you spent uh, a lot of years as a cop and you've been watching this at, both in your role as, uh, as law enforcement, um, a supporter, but also as someone who's, who stays relevant by, by producing films that are related to law enforcement. Sure. What do you think? I mean, you, you've been watching this. What do you think is behind this? Well, it's an interesting, uh, you know, topic to discuss. I mean, I, I think that ultimately it comes down to a couple things. Um, platforms. Um, the mainstream media controls the narrative. Uh, what I've noticed certainly is that regardless of what flavor of news that, you know, each individual person in this country watches, they are going to uh, see a talking head who is going to deem themselves an expert in anything. So when we get to the police matters that we uh, talk about frequently, obviously that means that um, <clears throat> these people uh, are going to listen and then ultimately probably vote for uh, you know, the district attorneys and, and every level of government who is going to create the types of policies that they have been conditioned to believe are going to work. But, you know, they're well-funded, as you already pointed out. Uh, big tech supports them. I mean, we have a problem right now where there are certain social media platforms that are deplatforming certain politicians that they don't agree with, which to me puts them at a tremendous and obvious disadvantage come election right. time. You know, and then you have the mainstream media that pushes these narratives. And what's really interesting, we all know this, is whenever you have a, a particular topic or issue, what do we see? Uh, uh, if it does not fit that narrative, then you're not going to see it on that particular channel. So what you were just discussing in the issue with Bragg in New York City, 
uh, and the change in law and the way an armed robbery is actually viewed by them in terms of prosecutional merit. If you point a gun at somebody, uh, say you're, you're uh, uh, doing an armed robbery of a liquor store, and as long as you don't pull the trigger and fire that round, right. <laughs> apparently it's not an armed robbery, it's just a larceny for the liquor and or cash that you took. Well, that's obviously a big problem. And how do we get to that point? Well, you're not going to see that discussion on certain news channels. But the problem is a large part of the country watches those news channels, takes it as if it's the gospel, takes it as if it's fact. And then that puts us where we're at because there's there was a tremendous get out to vote drive in the last presidential election. It would, you have to say it was successful. You had millions of people vote that probably had never voted in a presidential election before. And then that went on down the ballot though. So what do we have now? We have these people all the way down to the district attorney's office, as you said, that are in place and ultimately making these policies that are making our country sick. You know, um one of the things that I find interesting, and, and I don't think it's accidental, is that the defund the police movement, the anti-law enforcement movement that, is, that has been basically uh, hamstringing law enforcement for a number of years now, seems to have been um, correlating with this district, the, the, the advent of this district attorney uh, movement to get these people into office. So I'm not a believer in coincidences. You, you, you push to defund the police, to dehumanize the police, to create laws that literally um, don't allow the police to police. And at the same time that this is happening, you're seeing a, a, what inevitably is going to be the is going to be the result of that. Uh, which is the surging crime, uh, violent crime. I mean, you can't pick up a newspaper where you don't see a story about some horrendous um, figure um, that, that, that denotes the number of bodies piling up in America's cities. And at the same time, now you have prosecutors being put into place, literally, I mean, in, in the most violent cities in America, Chicago, Los Angeles, um, San Francisco, where they refuse to prosecute or they diminish the prosecution. What is the inevitability that we're going to see from this? Well, I think we're already seeing it, you know, and you touched on it a little bit earlier. We have a rising homicide rate in nearly every major city in this country. When you hamstring the police, what ends up happening, of course, and we talk about this all the time, is proactive policing stops. Because, you know, your average police officer is going to be out there working the street, regardless of where they're at in their in their career it could be, you know, a year on five years on 10 years on, it doesn't really matter. They're going to come to the quick realization that if they're not supported by their chain of command and by the people making the policies they're required to follow, or if they're going to make an arrest and they're going to be scrutinized for it and then see the district attorney not prosecute a good crime uh, where, where the case does have merit, but they don't prosecute it anyway because of political motivations, then, you know, what, what, what do cops tend to not do? They don't go into the high crime areas. They don't make those person and vehicle stops because I think to them, it's just not worth it. And, and I think that's the byproduct of what we see happening now. You're, I think you're absolutely right. So what we're seeing, we're seeing police officers afraid to police. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, of course, in my capacity as a law enforcement commentator on on the news, and also in my capacity as um, you know part of the Wounded Blue, which deals with injured and disabled officers across the nation, uh, I hear these these stories. I hear their the 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 pain that these officers are in because. You know, you, you and I both know that most people become a police officer because of a, a calling. Sure. They, they, they really want to play a role in being a protector. Well, when the protectors can't protect themselves, then the public goes, well, wait a minute. If they can't protect themselves, how are they going to protect me? Mm-hmm. And this undermines the, the fabric of, of our republic. It really does. You know, and, and, and inevitably, but here's, here's where I scratch my head. New York City, um, their crime rate has, has just blossomed, right? Like, 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 a, like a, 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 a flowers all over the fields. That's nice. that's, I think that's kind of a cool I'm sure that's why they look at it, right? <laughs> so so the, the bloodbath is, 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 is real. We're seeing the homicide rates, the armed robbery rates, just, just climbing and climbing. The smash and grabs, the, the, what I call mass criminal events taking place. Um, and so just this, you know, this month, January, uh, the new mayor who was elected on the platform of restoring some um, some fight against crime, he was he was elected on that platform. He's a retired police captain. Yeah. And then at the same time, a guy who gets uh, the, this the Bragg gets elected as the as the district attorney in the same city, who is, and he didn't he didn't lie about it. He said, I'm not going to prosecute these people. So how do we, how do you look at those two events and come to terms with how in God's name did that happen? You, it's literally the system can't work mm-hmm. with, with, with those, with the, those two dichotomies in play. Well, I think people, again, they're, they're fed by the mainstream media and, and by a, a curated feed in their respective social media platforms that's telling them what they should be thinking and what they should be voting for. And that's how that kind of thing happens. You know how uh, some of the late night talk show hosts, they used to go out, out into the street, you know, literally during their broadcast. <laughs> yeah. so they'd ask people some common questions about who their state leaders are, who their who their federal leaders right. are, even who the vice president of the United States is, and they couldn't answer those questions. Well, it's the same thing here. I mean, people have lives. I don't ever believe that, you know, the majority of people, the majority of voters, I, I should say, actually go into uh, the voting booth with a full understanding of everybody they're voting for and why. You know, you might see that in a presidential election at the top of the ballot, but as you go down ballot, and that's kind of the idea of this conversation is how important those down ballot races really are. You'd think a district attorney uh, would be elected and regardless of whether it's a partisan race or not, they would do their job, but we're not seeing that. But you see, and isn't that, that is, but it's a brilliant strategy Mm -hmm. on the part of the left. Absolutely. It's a brilliant strategy. When I first saw this taking place, a number of years ago, and I, I, I watched with great interest how, how this election was manipulated by literally millions of dollars being poured into 
which was, and it was in a, it was in, I forget which city it was in. Um, it was a medium-sized city, and I saw this happening. I go, wow, that's pretty interesting. And I, and George Soros's name popped up, of course, of course. as a, as a major contributor to this, and he he has been so successful in this insidious intrusion into into the the criminal justice system that he's now he's empowered in a major way but we also see we also see the the results um of this in in real time now as we as we watch the crime rates soar um and and i and then and at the same time many of these prosecutors are are in, instead of prosecuting criminals are going after police officers in a major way they are they want to prosecute the police they don't want to prosecute the, the the predators, but they want to prosecute the police. Um, there was a big win that I want to I want to talk about here, um, and and I was I was uh, very involved in this situation. Um, just a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, a police officer from La Mesa, California, Matthew Degas, was found not guilty by a jury on all charges. And the charges resulted from uh, an incident that took place in his city. Um, this uh, uh, he was assigned to a trolley station, and the reason he was assigned there was because there were people that were, uh, you know, uh, not paying the fares, and so he was assigned to to basically provide security at this at this trolley station. So he sees an individual that he believes. Um, doesn't belong there, begins a conversation with him. Um, uh, Degas is white. This individual was black. And, of course, there was somebody with a, with a cell phone that was, that was uh, filming the encounter. At some point during the, um, the consensual encounter, the suspect got up and, and basically bladed his body. In a, and this is where we're going to talk about your film that's coming up sure um in in a stance that that um that officer Degas realized was uh combative and and then he got in and actually pushed him he uh, the suspect pushed Degas. Degas literally pushed him down into a sitting position and that's what was filmed so Degas event eventually arrested him for uh resisting and um and, and uh disorderly and that little piece of video which was simply a, a movement to get him away from him went viral and that night the social media um platforms brought basically an a a riot into the city of la mesa la mesa burned la mesa burned and the off and the police department was told to stand down and it's the, the city still hasn't recovered. And this is two, over two years ago. But as a result of that, there was this huge, um, uh, you know, notoriety about this officer. And he was, he was uh, uh, investigated by the Internal Affairs, by the Use of Force Board. He was exonerated that they said the use of force was proper and legal. But here's what happened, and this is absolutely stunning. This is this is what this is what we talk about when we talk about depolicing and and 
the, the movement against law enforcement. So the city, the city government did not like that he was found to have been righteous in his use of force. So what they did next is absolutely almost impossible to believe. They went to him, the city manager, went to him and said, look, we think that you need to find another home. We want you to resign and we'll give you, get this, they offered him $600,000 to resign. But Matthew Degas is a man of principle. And he told them, I did nothing wrong. I'm not resigning. I'm not going to take your money. And, and what they did next is absolutely stunning. They, the city government, went out and, and, and hired an outside firm to reinvestigate. And of course, when they reinvestigated, they said that Matthew Degas was used force inappropriately and had lied on his police report. So they fired him and then they went to this, the San Diego district attorney and had her prosecute him on the felony charges of falsifying a police report. Matthew Degas life was upended. His wife and he began the fight of their life. And I had a, um, I had the opportunity to be with him and his wife on several occasions where they were advising me of what was taking place. And I was bringing this situation to, um, you know, to, to the people who listen to this show. Well, he fought him and he won. And now the city is going to face the consequences for persecution by prosecution. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to healthycell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. 
studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. This is not a fight of Republican versus Democrat. It's not a fight of rich versus poor, old versus young, man versus woman, gay versus straight. It's not a fight of black lives, blue lives, Hispanic lives, or white lives. This is a battle of good versus evil. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Don't you think, Jason, that this is being watched by every cop in America? Oh, there's no question about it. And, you know, I think that Americans need to understand uh, one really important thing, and that is... If, if you're going to expect the police to police and to go out and proactively 
uh, stop criminals from committing crimes or catch the ones who've already committed them, you are inevitably going to run into violent suspects who are not going to allow you to put handcuffs on them and take them to jail. It's that simple. Some people, most people actually will comply. But there's a percentage that will not, particularly if you have somebody who has a lot to lose, such as a violent felon who knows that if they get prosecuted one more time, they're going back to prison. If you box them in, that suddenly nonviolent criminal becomes violent in the blink of an eye, as we say. So Americans need to understand that. That's always been our job. But with the advent of cell phone cameras and, and some of the political things that we've talked about, all of a sudden now, Everybody thinks they know what it's like to walk in our shoes. You know, everybody believes that they know what the right solution would be to any given situation. And what are they measuring that on? Two or three seconds of video. You know, we saw we saw that uh, in in the um, uh, the Columbus, Ohio shooting last year, where you know we had a, a specific sports star who has a platform of millions of followers on every social media platform. Immediately docks that police officer, saying, "You're next." Well, what did that supposedly very smart basketball player base that upon? A few seconds of video. Nobody knows what the call was. Nobody knows what the officers knew when they arrived. Nobody even saw what led up to that and the fact that that officer saved a young woman's life. But is that the narrative that we see? It's not. Americans need to start to grapple with that idea. I don't know that if a certain part of the population ever has. I think the majority always has. But I think that majority is starting to crumble a little bit because we've all taken sides in this supposed political divide that we're in in this country. And unfortunately, that means that people are going to not do their homework and they're not going to understand the complexities of the job a cop sees every single day on every call. And this is a perfect segue for uh, to talk about your new film. Um, First of all, uh, you know, you, you, you're in during your law enforcement career, you were a trainer and you you spent a lot of years um, in, uh, training police officers in, in, in uh, defense tactics. Yes. Um, now you have morphed into into the creative world. Um, you, you, you created the film uh, The Wounded Blue, yes. which uh, um, I urge everybody that is listening or watching the show to go to Amazon.com or some of the other platforms and watch this film. This documentary film, The Wounded Blue, um, documents what is truly happening to law enforcement officers when they are severely injured or disabled in the line of duty. It will shock you. And I, I hope that it does shock you uh, and, and move you to help an incredible organization like The Wounded Blue. But that was that was one of the films you've done. You've 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 just completed another film that is, that is really based on um, on uh, defense. If you would, let's talk about that film now. Sure. Yeah, the film is going to be called uh, Wrist Lock. Uh, I'm putting the finishing touches on it right now. It's going to essentially cover or chronicle the martial arts influence on police use of force. And we're tackling a lot of different issues in, in this film. Um, ultimately, I think that what we want people to understand is what I was just talking about, the complexities of the job. Each and every time you make that car person stop or go on a domestic dispute or a loud music call or any type of call that you could be dispatched to, big police departments have millions of these calls every single year. Uh, 
I want people to understand what is going through a police officer's mind each and every time they arrive on that call, what's going to ultimately make them feel as though they are in control of the situation, uh, and what the little bells and whistles are that might be going off in their mind that maybe something is amiss or something's not going to go the way they believe, and then ultimately how do they handle it. So we want to cover the full spectrum of use of force, but a little known fact, uh, probably to the general public, is that every defensive tactics technique that a police officer is taught, and this is across all 18,000 plus police agencies in this country, is derived from martial arts. But what do we what do we think about when we think about your average martial artist? How did they become so proficient and so good at what they do? Well, practice. What is it as police officers that we know that police officers do not like to do when it comes to training? They don't like to practice. But even probably uh, more of a problem is that agencies don't mandate it either. And unfortunately, there are places in this country more than we will ever know that once you graduate the police academy. You will never have to take a physical fitness test again. You will never have to practice defensive tactics again, which could include something as important that you'll use every day like handcuffing. And as we've discussed in films like The Wounded Blue and, and you've made it your life's mission to uh, uh, try to remedy the mental side of things. If a police officer is, is mentally compromised from cumulative trauma in some manner throughout his or her career, you have to assume that their use of force decision making is also going to be compromised at some level. And what we typically see as trainers is either a classic overreaction or an underreaction. You know, th th this is really, this is fascinating material. Um, and I think the, the fact that you, you, your, your entire career has been um, not just in, in the basic law enforcement, but in the training aspect of this. So I know you, you feel very passionately about this, but what I find really interesting is you melding your creative being into, um, in, into this world. And it's, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, uh, for me, a, a very interesting topic to talk to you about because you're trying, you're basically translating for the public. Mm -hmm what is a very little known aspect about law enforcement, and yet it is probably the most important and most misunderstood aspect of law enforcement is the use of force. So, so you, you sought out some incredible people to be in this film. Talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, you know, uh, the film is framed around a really good friend of mine, uh, a, a guy that when I came out of the police academy in the early 1990s and was assigned to my first graveyard squad, I met a uh, fellow officer named John Gentile. Well, he is a master martial artist and has been uh, in training in the martial arts for over four decades. Uh, and, and because I trained under him myself and, and have known him and has been a very good friend of mine uh, since then, um, I sought him out as basically the primary subject of the film because I wanted somebody that had that, you know, he's a retired police sergeant now, he retired 26 years from our agency, but uh, I wanted someone who was well-rounded in the martial arts, but also could speak on the police side of things and could take the audience through a journey, if you will, into all over the country and, and see all of the different martial arts that influenced 
police use of force? And then where do we go from there? How do we get the fitness angle uh, addressed? Why are agencies not doing that? But what are the solutions? And I'm not talking about necessarily the idea. I mean, sure, we could probably put on film uh, or on, on screen a lot of overweight cops, but that's not really what it's about. It's not a vanity situation or how good somebody looks. It's your health right? I mean, that's ultimately what we're looking at. A harrowing statistic that Dr. John Scheinberg, who, who appears in the film as one of the medical experts, uh, he travels the country with a message that pri primarily revolves around the fact that the average civilian lives to be 79 years old, but the average cop only lives to be 57 years old. That's a 22-year disparity wow. and is far and away the largest of any occupation in this country. Why? Well, it's a, it's a cocktail of, of uh, terrible things all kind of culminating at once. We know stress, okay? The lack of physical fitness, of course. Um, and then everything that comes into play uh, mentally when we talk about some of the things that are going on in this country, it's very debilitating to a cop's ability to do the job. When you're seeing what all this noise on the news, uh, we're not like professional athletes and you can just block out the crowd and mentally focus. That's very difficult to do when everybody from your own chain of command to all of the politicians in your particular city are going on the news every single day, not supporting you. So that's what we seek to do with this film is to talk about those issues. And, you know, you were talking about putting that whole creative force towards this particular topic and some of the others that we've done, uh, like the Wounded Blue. Um, <clears throat> here's the way I look at it. And I just talked about this in a LinkedIn post just a couple days ago. The truth is ours to tell because we lived it. It's not somebody else's some talking head who just deemed the fact that because this is the hot button issue of the day that I have to get in front of a news camera and talk about it and act like I know it all because they don't. They've never done our job. So it's, it's time that people like the Randy Suttons of the world and, and so many like yourself that are out there telling what the truth is. But the question is, will people listen? That, that is the question. You know, I don't, want, I don't want the audience to think that you're a one-trick pony here, okay? Because, because the, one of the other films that you did was, was based on cheerleading. <laughs> it was, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, actually. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've done a few sports documentaries too. For me, it, it, it's really just the love of filmmaking and, and those that know me uh, certainly uh, will understand that. But you're, you're, you're correct. My passion uh, during my career uh, here was uh, defensive tactics, use of force. And, you know, I worked on our police academy for a number of years and in-service training uh, throughout my career, training our own instructors uh, for, for well over a decade. So, yes, it is something that I was very passionate about. And, and really, a lot of the film work I've done, to me, culminates with this, because you're always going to make mistakes in, in when you're putting these massive films together. They're feature films. And, you know, when you're kind of a, a one man show and you're doing all the jobs from from conception all the way to distribution, uh, obviously, there's a lot that goes into it and it takes a lot of time and you're going to make a few mistakes. But I was hoping to learn from those and then ultimately make this film and, and hope it is by far and away the most ambitious thing that I've ever done. But I'm very thankful for the cast and the people that, you know, donated their time to be in this film, because what I found was a lot of people when I pitched it who were smiling back at me. And why is that? Because we're talking about it, the same issues that they were talking about, regardless of we're talking about Fort Worth, Texas, Tucson, Arizona, Jacksonville, Florida, uh, 
the message was always the same. Unfortunately, because certain administrators, they, they get to a certain level and they never ask the trainers, the people who are putting in the time to analyze this stuff and really understand what works and what doesn't. You know, and, and this is part of a much bigger discussion too. Yeah, this is part of the discussion that that um, uh, in my I, I I have an upcoming book um, that that is going to have some of the, some of this some of this um, uh, material in it, and that is that I think that we have missed a golden opportunity to evolve as a career in policing. Mm -hmm. When I say that, all right, there has been this this massive disinformation campaign about um, reimagining policing, um, reforming policing is, is, is the word, police reform. Um, and, it, and it's just, but it, it's really been about revenge against the police, not been about, about reformation because policing doesn't need reformation. Policing needs to be allowed to evolve and needs to be allowed to capitalize on all of the advancements that have taken place, but but they're not. So here's here's what I, I, I really want your 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 thoughts on this. If if the political leadership of this country really wants policing to improve, mm -hmm. all right, we are all believers in that. We are all believers in let's let's improve policing. But we could have taken this, all of this, this insanity, all of this effort to, to destroy policing, and instead of that, put in funding to train policing. Because isn't training the, 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 the real crux of this issue here for how we could, we could make our police better? Mm-hmm. And if we put the money and the time and the effort, all this that's been that's been put into into this this movement to destroy law enforcement, we could have really made a change. And we could have we 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 could and maybe maybe a film like yours will be a wake up call for for police leadership. Let's make our cops better by training them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I would kind of refer to that as just changing the culture. Uh, Reimagining is kind of a, the, the word that's thrown around by people who have never done our job. And, and they think they know what it is. They think they know what it's like. But we, we know that's not the case. So uh, they, have to have say, they have to say something in front of the TV cameras to maintain their relevancy. So they're just going to spout off all of these ideas that anyone who's done the job, including police leaders, know it's not going to make sense. It's not doable. But like anything in the world uh, that, is, that, is, uh, that is worthy, it takes money to be able to get these things done. And something we noticed, you know, from, from uh, moving about the country, uh, filming the Wounded Blue, you and I, was that a lot of these smaller agencies do not have the infrastructure in place to plan for that day one of their cops is involved in a critical incident. And then ultimately, how do we take care of them in the aftermath? We know it, it, it's woefully substandard in that category. Well, it's the same thing with training as well. Uh, a lot of times, you know, one of the guys, uh, Anthony Brown in the film, he has a really good quote where he talks about how 
uh, a department will go out and buy the latest drone, for example, and spend you know a million dollars on it. And not to say it's not for a good reason, but that same department, you'll have a trainer say, "Hey, let's bring this guy <laughs> in and 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 you know pay him twenty five hundred bucks to train our cops in this very specific and, and noteworthy skill." Oh no, we can't afford that. And so, <laughs> right. yeah, and and, and the the irony of the whole defund the police thing that we were all saying at the time, especially in 2020 when it kind of reached its peak, uh, is do people realize that the budgets for the actual cops on the street and the cars that they drive and the equipment that they have is not what's going to be slashed. It's the training budget. Exactly. Their training budget is going to be slashed to zero. And so years will go by. And again, our police officers across this country and agencies large and small are not going to have their skills honed. I mean, how would you like to have somebody uh, like a doctor, for example, operate on you who hasn't had any recertification training in 10 years? Exactly. We have to look at policing in the same way. It is a profession after all. It is a very complex job. There are tons of components to it that I think the average person just doesn't get. You know, I um, I had a, uh, a, a, a phone call that, that really shocked me. Um, I did a little research after, you, um, you'll remember that there was a, a tragic, tragic um, officer-involved shooting where a, a 13 or 14-year-old boy was uh, playing with a basically a toy gun and uh, in a park. This was in Ohio. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, uh, someone saw what he thought was a, a gun and called the police, and the police responded. Now, when the police responded, there was a, um, an inexperienced officer driving the car. And when he pulled up to what was considered to be an armed suspect, he literally pulled directly up to that, 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 that uh, suspect, placing his partner in a position where when he saw the gun and, and the kid raised the gun, that, which was turned out to be a toy. He opened fire and killed the, and killed the child, mm -hmm. and it was you know it made just I mean it, it was it was a horrendous, horrible, tragic situation that that devolved into protests and 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 destroyed the life of of that officer, and I was and I which was clearly a training issue from what from my point of view, so I contacted the uh, um, the state. Uh, of of Ohio, their police officer standards and training commission, and I said, "How? Tell me about your training uh, requirements." And their basic training requirements were like four hundred and some hours. It was really really low. And I said, "Well, what about your in service training?" And they said, two hours a year." Yeah. And I said, two, "Wait a minute, hold on a second. Two hours a year? That's insane." And this person who was on the other who was on the other uh, side of the of the conversation said, "I know." And the state legislature actually enacted uh, a law that said we have to train eight hours a year. Oh boy, eight hours, right? Or twelve hours, whatever it was. But then they refused to fund it. Right. So it's it's exactly what you just said mm -hmm. that 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 led in. in and is leading to these tragic situations where then the police are blamed and it inflames society and it all comes down to the topic of your film. Where, where, now where are you in the, in the, uh, uh, 
where the film is going to be released. Well, we're in, uh, I, I'm just finishing up post-production now. Uh, the film had been in production since uh, early last summer. So we are uh, hoping to have hoping to have it probably released in the next couple months. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a process, as you know, you know, it, we're at the point to try to get some eyeballs on it and, and, and maybe scale it down a little bit, but I'm really liking where it's at. And, and, you know, I'm hoping to, uh, have something to show people pretty soon. Cause I think it will be impactful if, if we can get it out there. And that's, that's always the trick, you know, when you don't have a, you know, multi-million dollar marketing <laughs> machine behind you, like a lot of these, you know, entities that we've been talking about do, that's how you get a message out. And uh, that's, that's a really tough thing to do. And, you know, obviously police related films aren't necessarily the uh, top, top of the food heap today when right. it comes to that topic, just because, you know, uh, obviously uh, there's a narrative out there that, that is anti-police, which is really sad because, you know, as we both know, there, there are just so many dedicated cops uh, out there across this country who do the job for, you know, certainly not anything that would be construed as life-changing money and yet they they do it for the right reasons and they get the job done with with less every single day with virtually no support from the people that uh, that matter in, in in how things go for their job uh, now uh, you I know you have a social media presence how can people um, tune in to you and and know about more about you and about the film uh, generally speaking, I, I'm, I'm uh, on Twitter uh, at Jason Harney 72 is the uh, uh, how you'll find me there. And then uh, LinkedIn, you can find me by name as well. And then uh, Lightning Digital Entertainment is my company and uh, lightningdigitalentertainment.com is the website. So, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, my idea is to, to continue the filmmaking career and make as many films that are impactful as possible. I do like to cover a wide variety of subjects, but given my, you know, my background, the career that I hold near and dear and, and retired from, uh, thankfully in one piece, uh, I'm always going to try to give back and, and try to tell the stories of police officers that at least from my view, would go untold otherwise. And I, that's what we did with the Wounded Blue. I mean, those are stories that didn't get a lot of media attention, maybe locally, but certainly not nationally. And uh, that's really what this film is about too, to bring the attention to a topic that you know the mainstream media just simply refuses to cover. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and co-host the show with me today, Jason. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you, Randy. Oh, my pleasure. So a couple things before we, um, before we end the show. Um, each show, if, uh, you'll re you'll, uh, if you've been listening or watching for a while, uh, I, I end the show uh, with, uh, well, basically eulogizing uh, law enforcement officers who have died in the line of duty. And since, um, since uh, January has taken place, we've lost two. Uh, the first is police officer Christopher Gibson, Dallas Police Department, Texas. Police officer Chris Gibson died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Officer Gibson served with the Dallas Police Department for over 24 years. He is survived by his wife and two daughters. So police officer Christopher Gibson, Dallas Police Department, Texas. End of watch Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. Next is North Carolina Trooper John Horton. John Horton was killed in the line of duty in a very, very tragic accident. Uh, he had requested backup on a on a motor vehicle stop where he had an individual detained. His backup arrived in the person of his brother, 
who was also a North Carolina state trooper who lost control of the vehicle and struck both his brother and the detainee, both killed. John Horton, North Carolina Department of Public Safety, State Police, end of watch, January 6, 2022. Both of these individuals gave their lives in the line of duty. Um, so one thing before we, uh, before we say goodbye is I, I want to once again bring to your attention the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. This organization has helped more than 13,000 American law enforcement officers who were severely injured, either uh, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, or physically. Uh, their stories are incredible, and uh, I urge you to watch the film that Jason and I talked about that he that he created uh, called The Wounded Blue. It's on Amazon.com and other platforms. You can find it. Um, this, this organization is made up of individual officers who have suffered. Uh, they are the peer advocate support team of the, of, uh, the Wounded Blue. And each one of these officers, despite the physical and emotional injuries they have received, want to continue to serve. Well, that's a really important topic here, and that is the service that they want to continue to do. And that is, they may not be able to perform as a police officer anymore. So they continue to want to serve their brothers and sisters, and they do so in very, very dramatic ways. We have saved a number of lives. I ask you to go to our website, thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. And check out who we are, what we do. If you can donate, we would really appreciate it. If you like this cool mug and the one Jason has, you can, <laughs> and my cool t-shirt, by the way. I need to get you a t-shirt. Uh, you can get them on our website as well. That's thewoundedblue.org. And uh, we have some pretty cool gear. Uh, there's going um, to be some more information coming out about uh, some topics that I think you will enjoy. Uh, if, you, if you're a Facebooker, you can find The Wounded Blue on Facebook. And uh, if you want to connect with me, the voice of American law enforcement, uh, the voice for law enforcement, American law enforcement, is also on Facebook. I love to hear from people who who uh, watch the show and listen to the show, and um, uh, I'd I love to hear your suggestions. If there's guests that you want me to bring on, please let me know. I'll reach out to them. Uh, so once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us here at the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm Lieutenant Randy Sutton and my co-host, uh, Sergeant Jason Harney. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. One of them